This is the Rower's Choice Podcast. This is a special interview. I have Alex James, the CEO of NK. If you, well, if you're listening, you're a rower. So you obviously know NK. You obviously know the components that they build and what they've done for the industry for the last, uh, I think, 20 plus years now. 40. Uh, 40, geez. 78. 1978 was the start. So today you're going to listen a little bit about uh, Alex's past and how she's how she's tied to the rowing community and how she has become the CEO of, of this wonderful business. And then uh, we're going to talk a little bit about where we think the industry is going and uh, some advice that she has for, for people who want to get into the sport. So, Alex, this is awesome. I mean, I got to tell you, in this building at NK, it's impressive. And you gave me a tour a while ago, and I had no idea what NK really was until I had that tour. So... You know, this is a podcast. You can't really ex- you can't show people with the visuals. But tell us about your background of rowing, how you've gotten to where you are, and and what's happened to NK in the last say forty years, but last specifically last ten years. Right. So I'll go back and do a little NK history because my history is woven in with NK's history. My stepfather was one of the three founders of this business. He was a researched chemist at Xerox. Mm. Um, Xerox? Yeah. Xerox Innovation Labs, which in upstate New York. And he and another scientist at Xerox, who was a research physicist, friends, they, they just kind of wanted to start a business making something. That was about as far as they'd gotten in their business plan. Mm. Um, Hewlett Packard at that, that point had very much gotten going, but it was certainly not the Hewlett Packard that it became. It was really the funny calculator company. And they admired that company. They, the name, the reason it's Nielsen Kellerman with a hyphen is because it was Hewlett Packard with a hyphen. I had, oh, wow. Um, and <laughs> we had a family friend who uh, was anybody older than... I don't know. I'm not going to put a number on it. Ted Nash was a family friend. Okay, sure. So, um, and Ted Nash is kind of legendary in the sport. He was the coach at Penn. Yeah. And we went to uh, the IRAs to watch the race. And at that point in 1978 in rowing, when you shoved off from the dock, your coxswain had a cardboard megaphone, a cardboard tube strapped to their face with a metal and leather frame and an analog stopwatch taped to one leg and That's amazing. an analog stroke rate watch taped to the other leg the boats were completely open in the bottom like a canoe so the way the coxswain communicated was to lean way forward and put that cone down into the bottom of the boat and shout into the bottom of the oh, boat sure, yeah. so the sound could travel through the boat and when he needed to count um, a rhythm he would take the wooden knockers and bang them into the side of the And as well as doing all of that and steering and all of that, he would periodically reach down to his legs and hit the stopwatch to start and grab splits. And he would hit the stroke rate watch. The way the rate watch worked was um, it was a sweep hand, and you would hit the button, count three or five strokes, depending on which brand of watch it was, and hit the button again. And then you would read these really tiny numbers that said what the stroke rate was. I don't think anybody in today's roaring world, especially like teenagers and, and some of the college kids, knew anything about that. That it's, is wild. And 
As a result, you sometimes crashed into each other because the poor <laughs> coxswain was doing 27 things. And that is actually that. There was quite a bad crash that year at the IRAs, just one. And we, we said, well, why did that happen? And Ted explained the whole thing of all the stuff that the wow. coxswain was trying to do. And one of the pen coxswains, who was an engineer, had taken a metal construction lunchbox and made an amplifier system of his own. He just cobbled it together from parts. And um, it wasn't terribly reliable. And Ted handed it to Paul and said, here, fix this. Wow. So the first NK job was fixing this construction lunchbox. And Ted Nash gave the, gave the business. At which point, <laughs> Paul said, well, I could invent something better than this. And we made the first Cox box, which was audio only. And uh, my stepdad is British. And Brits like puns, which is why it's the Cox box, <laughs> which to this day is, still makes people giggle, which I think is kind of funny. Um, and we continued to improve the product, develop the product. We were literally building them in the basement. Um, wow. I was in high school. I had a brief stint soldering. I was not terribly good at that, <laughs> so I decided I probably should go to college. Now, were you rowing at this time? No, I, I was a runner. I was a little... I, 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 Ran and rode horses, which I still ride horses. Um, and I was pretty small. I'm only 5'7". Mm. Um, and so I'd never thought of rowing. And got into Yale, went to Yale, um, went and introduced myself to Ted Na uh, to uh, Nat Case, who was the women's coach, because I had talked to him on the phone because I did also take orders and stuff like mm. that. And he asked me if I was going to row. I said, I'm too small. He said, well, Chris Ernst, who is also kind of legendary to a certain group of people. That's who the he a Hero for Daisy is about. Mm. She was the women's coach, and Chris Ernst is actually only five foot five, so he told me that was no excuse. Wow. So I learned to row my freshman year. I got a lot stronger and uh, wound up making the varsity my sophomore year. Wow. And we What kind of boats were you rowing at the time? Do you remember? Um, they were called Carbocraft, yeah, which okay, became yeah. Vespoli. Uh -huh. Yeah, sure. So, and Mike coached the light, the freshman men. That's right. Okay, and so that, this so is this early was, 80s. So, so Andy and Bacchus was actually at Yale at the time. Andy Bacchus was a lightweight rower. Yeah. Um, so and, around your same era. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. And um, and it was it was a heyday of Yale rowing. In fact, that. Yeah, women obviously now are super strong, but there was a long period where they were not as competitive. And, um, you know, so we were kind of the last round of medal winning before mm -hmm. the Will Porter years and wow. raking everything in as they do now. Um, so it was a lot of fun. And, you know, and I'd never considered myself an athlete. So rowing changed me personally. Um, and I... At the time, there was very little sculling, and partly because I was smaller, I did learn how to row a single, mm. went to sports festivals, uh, tried, spent about three years trying to make the team as a sculler, never quite made it. But I was kind of in that, you know, in that group. Yeah, sure. It's completely different than what it looked, you know, what that group looks like now. Yeah, right, I'm but sure. Gosh, yeah. In the, in the early 80s, I was, I was definitely a very competitive sculler. I was a better sculler than sweep rower just because I was smaller. And, and through this, this, so your four years there, uh, your stepfather and the group here were still developing. So they're, and, they're and building, building, the, building the business. They, um, and you know, we briefly had this conversation before we started this podcast. This was a super interesting time in the rowing business because there really wasn't much rowing business. Rowing was really small. Mm -hmm. It was a handful of 
coastal schools. You really only found rowing in California, Washington, Oregon, and the Northeast. That's right. There was no rowing anywhere else. I mean, you know, University of Ohio having a rowing team, <laughs> you know, none of this. And so the market was super small, and it was mostly men's teams. Um, but you had uh, Title IX was passed. I actually don't know what year it was passed, but it was in the late 70s. Yeah, I think it was 78. But there was a full decade in which schools could come into compliance. So through the 80s, you had schools trying to figure out how they were going to comply. And women's crew turned out to be a great way to come into compliance because it was a high participation sport. Yep. You, know, you think about a gymnastics team with seven gymnasts, well, you, you know, and you need to get 30 people doing a sport. Well, rowing's pretty good for that. And you know, it's funny. So that was when, so as you, as you pointed out earlier, um, Hudson, uh, fluid design, um, you know, Resolute was slowly trying, like there was the idea of Resolute was starting to be built yeah. in, the, in the 80s. Vespoli. Uh, I mean, so the Dreyer. Pocock, yeah, Dreyer. And then, and then Pocock, Pocock obviously had been around for a long time. That's when, Bill, and that's when Bill Titus took over and, and, and grew. So you're right. The economy of rowing sort of really blossomed and grew in the early 80s. And Absolutely. The Which 80s. is, you know, if you look around at the class of rowing companies today were almost all around the same age in North, yeah. in, in North America. Yes, I, yes, spot um, on. And, and partly, you know, when you're trying to grow a business, it's a hell of a lot easier to do it if the market you're selling to is growing at the same time as you're mm. trying to grow a business. And proportionately, the market was growing. And it's a really niche market. You know, it takes a lot of intimate understanding of the needs of the market to be successful. So it is mostly people with some kind of connection to rowing that are running sure. businesses. Um, it is interesting in the, as we fast forward to 2020, seeing um, some of these businesses now have, you know, founders have to figure out how to transition out of the business. Um, I had no... plug for, well, for what Rower's Choice is doing. Right. I mean, and it's actually, you know, sort of the next part of the story. I had no thought of coming into this business. So I went to college, graduated, wound up going to law school, Married a guy in the Navy, moved to California, practicing law in California. Wow. He decides we've got to move to an island north of Seattle because it's a different airplane. And I dutifully went with him and discovered that practicing law there was kind of a non-starter. So I called my dad up and said, hey, your ads are terrible. I was an English major. I'm sure I can write better ads than you. Um, and I was a lawyer, so I was general counsel as well. So from a distance, I became the marketing department and general counsel all rolled Yeah, that you just couldn't get away. You couldn't right. stay away from the business. So I did that part-time long distance for three years. Um, and then really, I wanted to come back home. I wanted to work full-time for the business. My husband wanted to get out of the Navy. It all worked out well. So... Um, I've been working for the company 28 years. It's easy for me to remember. because So soldering at one point, yeah. uh, customer service calls, marketing, I've and now me. you shot yourself to CEO. <laughs> and, you know, it still was kind of just a job. I had two young kids. It was a job that afforded me a little hour's flexibility. I was mm -hmm. doing stuff I liked. I get bored super easily, so whatever needed fixing, I tended to kind of bounce around. So whether it was picking a new computer system setting up materials, um, learning about manufacturing and becoming a lean manufacturer, which I did that a lot of That is extremely impressive in there. Um, that is amazing. And so I, I had worked in all sorts of different parts of the business, sales and marketing, being on the road doing sales. Um, but somewhere in there, uh, I started really 
I like to change stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I started wanting to change more stuff than the uh, one owner was comfortable with. And so we were a little bit bumping into each other. Mm -hmm. And it became time for them to start thinking about their succession plan. And it's a heck of a lot easier to do a succession plan when you've got somebody in the business who wants to be your successor. And, and what year is this now? So now we're in 2010. Okay. And explored a number of different options for um, taking the business to through succession and wound up deciding to actually put the business on the market for sale. Wow. Um, and uh, we did a management-led um, private equity-funded acquisition. So um, I and a couple of the other managers stayed on and got... A small piece of equity that wasn't worth anything on the day we got it because we had a whole lot of debt but mm -hmm. it was our job to continue to grow the business and pay the debt which we did um, and that first private equity firm held us for six years and we went okay. through another transition in 2017 and are on our second round of private equity backing and private equity gets a little bit of a bad rap particularly right now during the current presidential campaign it's one of the um, but honestly, that's the role of private equity that's a positive. You have founders that their entire personal net worth is tied up in a business that they that's built. Right. And you, banks aren't going to lend you the money to buy it if you have no other assets. So private equity, that's really what they've done is they have funded and enabled generational transitions of businesses, usually to the managers who are running the business. Yeah. And there's an enormous number of businesses that would have failed. It would have just disappeared um, as the founders just kind of rode into the ground and instead um, get financed to move forward and get a level of professionalism and advice. And in our case, it's really, it's really helped support our well, ongoing growth. And, 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 but it's also allowed you to be really innovative. I mean, you know, aside from the Cox box, you have so many components and tools here for rowing. That's uh, people, I don't think people actually understand what you've been through in, in, in developing this. But you don't just do rowing equipment, right? I mean, NK also builds so the, other things. The NK company includes two major brands, NK Sports, which is predominantly rowing and a little bit dragon boating and stand-up paddleboard. But 20 years ago, we took some of what we'd learned about making tough, rugged measurement instruments in sports and made a measurement instrument for weather. And mm -hmm. we gave that a different brand. That brand is Kestrel, which is a little hawk. Um, and that business has actually outgrown the rowing business. It's significantly larger than the rowing business. But both businesses are super important to um, our development. And we're able to um, leverage research and development that we do in one area and the other area. So. Um, not just how to make stuff rugged and waterproof, but also how to use Bluetooth, how to gather data into organized files and export them and make them useful for other things, how to get data to the cloud, um, how to visualize data. So my question, my, my, I only have two more questions um, because I, 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 I don't want to get too deep and I, we, I could talk with you for hours in this and I know that we have a short period of time, but you know, where do you think technology is headed with rowing? And you say cloud-based, right? What What do you think is going to happen to the rowing boats um, and the equipment being used for the future? Well, it's pretty easy for me to answer that because if we don't do it, I don't know who is. Nobody will do it. So um, our plan, um, which we've 
created elements of it with the launch of the new Cox box, which anybody who's bought a new Cox box sees that there's two connectors that they're pretty familiar with, the rowing, the microphone connector and the speaker battery connector. Mm -hmm. And there's this other one that we put on there. And what's the job of that thing? Well, the job of that connector is going to be to be allow the Cox box to start being the data hub in the whole boat. Wow. So um, we, we went from measuring the performance of the whole boat to um, with the Orlock being able to measure performance and provide feedback to the individual athletes. But it's still a little challenging to tie that data all together with our current system because we're just still developing elements of it. But the plan is ultimately that there will be a node at each seat that serves both as a display for the athlete that the coxswain has some control over what's being shown on that display but it will also pick up data it can pick up the orlock data it can pick up heart rate data potentially we can add other sensors um so that is going to be a data channel through the whole boat and, and the cox box speed. will i mean that, that that is going to allow so much growth and speed in the boat i mean you can now communicate well, clearly. i'm going to do a little plug for the Please. orlock because um honestly it's and I do recognize that where we are right now in our development of that technology is it's not quite as easy to use as we want it to be in terms of accessing the data. But we took a very different approach with the Orlock, which was every coach that talked to us about a product like that for the previous 15 years basically wanted an erg on the water. They wanted to be able to measure the output of their individual athletes in order to pick the eight best, strongest people and put them in the boat. Mm -hmm. We took a different angle, which was to enable you to measure the output of the athlete, but also to be able to give the athlete information about what they are doing in real time. And that is what we have already seen with the programs that have adopted the Orlock, is what makes the fastest change. So if you've got a group of eight people, and they're the eight people that you've got, the way you're going to find more speed is not to find a different person because you don't have a different person, but it's to get those eight people rowing together as effectively as they possibly can. And things, simple things, like having them all at the same catch angle, we've demonstrated it, we've measured it. It, it can make seconds worth of difference over 2K. Just And you think you can ride along in a launch next to them and get the angles right? You cannot. <laughs> you cannot. And you're going to have all different sizes of athletes. And if you decide that the catch angle is 62 and you tell every athlete, I want you to hit 62, and they move their feet and they adjust their, you know, they stop overreaching or they reach a little further depending on who it is and what their personal thing that they need to change is. It's like you're right next to each one, every single stroke saying, good, good, nope, a little longer, good, good, nope, a little longer. Or, wow. and, that's what people still don't understand about the Orlock. The Orlock is an onboard coach for each athlete. And it makes a huge difference. Athlete selection, getting them in the right order in the boat, it's, it is a huge tool for coaching and athlete development. You can take not very good rowers and give them clear feedback. And, it, and it's, people are a huge fan of the power curve. They all wanna know, they wanna see the power curve because that's what we're familiar with. Mm -hmm. It is really hard to mentally process and change your rowing to make a power curve look a certain way. It is really easy to say, my catch angle is 62, 
and hit it stroke after stroke after stroke when previously I was really inclined to overreach and put myself in a weak position and go to 65, which really isn't that helpful for me because when I go to 65, I dive my hands and I sky and I don't, I, I have a terrible catch, which we also measure. <laughs> so I believe it's taking some time for the rowing market to catch up with where we are with this, but there's a huge opportunity to go in this direction. And certainly the direction cycling has already gone, it's the direction of a lot of other precision sports have already gone. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other stuff that can be measured. You can actually measure the swing throw of your shoulders. You can measure the difference in timing between your catch and your moving of your seat. Um, you know, do you, and then there's questions about that. Like, do you actually want to get your seat moving just a tiny bit before the oar goes in the water? It turns out that the fastest Olympic athletes, that's what they do, mm. and which feels like you're shooting your tail, which you're not. You're just getting, if you think about it, what's the heaviest stuff in a boat? You know how much a boat weighs, and you know how much the athletes weigh. Each yeah. athlete's poundage, having to go back in the other direction, is actually the biggest part of a rowing system. And moving that mass efficiently is super important. You know, I love your passion in this, and I, and I wish there was a video to show that like you are extremely passionate about this business, <laughs> about what you're talking about, and it's uplifting. I mean, it, it, it gives me energy to see how much you love what you're doing every day. It's really and fun. I, and I see that here, too, in the building. I mean, I see the same energy. My last question, and, and it's, an, it's a loaded question, but we're, we're all about growing the sport, not from just an athlete perspective, but from an industry perspective. We want to people and feel encouraged to come into our into our business. sport and business. What do you give what advice can you give to a 16-year-old girl who wants to do something in the sport of rowing? I mean, you are the CEO of NK, uh, very successful business, very successful leader within this company. People respect you and trust you. What do you say to the 16-year-old girl that says to you, Alex, I, I want to do something in this sport? Well, you prepped me with this question, and I told you I wasn't necess <laughs> necessarily going to give the answer that you wanted to hear. So the part of the problem is, from the business standpoint, it is still a relatively small small sport. I mean, if you look around at the businesses in, in rowing. And obviously, you know, the clearest career path, if you want to stay in it, is coaching, mm -hmm. um, which um, some people are great at it. We, we need good coaches. Um, and, but it is, it's challenging to make a living, so you're probably going to have to do something else. Um, there's, you know, ancillary sports along the side, you know, all the physiological support, um, PT, you know, every big program now has regular visits by PTs and massage therapists and sure. um, nutritionists. And so there's a lot of stuff you can do around that that could well be, well serve rowing, but also put you in a good position to serve other niches um but inside the sport you know rowers rowers do by and large make really good employees um i've got about a dozen of them working for me and uh, it's certainly a group that we go back to to um to recruit from i absolutely believe that the discipline and time management and everything else you have to learn and teamwork and Everything you learn every day. Everything anyway. you learn every day as part of the, the sport is 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 good stuff. Um, you're you're likely to be successful in business, and um, you know I encourage women to 
continue to look at leadership roles in business. I mean, there's still far, far, far too few of us. I mean, the, the, numbers, yeah. the numbers are not changing as fast as they should. Um, and let me tell you, being the woman CEO of an electronics manufacturing business is a vanishingly <laughs> small, <laughs> small group. <laughs> well, I, I thank you for, for today. Uh, this has been wonderful. And I hope, listeners, you've enjoyed a chance to learn a little bit about the NK history, but also learn a little bit about Alex and, and what she's been going through with NK, starting as a person who solders to marketing and now the CEO of the company. I hope you enjoyed the episode and talk to you soon. episode of Rowers Choice Podcast. Please share it with your friends or anyone in the rowing world you know would enjoy it. This is the Rowers Choice Podcast. Rowers Choice is made up of finish line shell repair, Resolute Racing Shells, and Sykes USA.